Last week, we had the theme, Christ holds all things together. And we said throughout the history of our faith, beginning with our spiritual ancestors, we have been inspired to be hopeful. We are called to be helpful. And through Jesus, we are made whole because Christ holds all things together. This week, our theme comes from that same letter, this church in Colossae that Paul is writing, and what we have is the epistle to the Colossians. We'll be dealing with the third chapter in just a moment, but let's first talk about Ecclesiastes, because in our lectionary tradition, there is this very interesting church tradition that we're a part of, where our movement through the Bible is kind of dictated through the suggestions that long ago people of faith came together and said, these are some common themes from scriptures, and it offers a discipline for us in congregations around the world to make sure we cover as much of the Bible as we can. And sometimes preachers go to the texts that are a little bit easier and aren't quite as stretching of heart and soul. And so this is a discipline through the lectionary tradition that forces us to use passages that are hard, like this one from Ecclesiastes. It is suggested to be used this Sunday in conjunction with this third chapter of Colossians. Uh, about two months ago, Shelley Woodruff in her sermon called attention to this lectionary tradition and said that it is a way of holding these scriptures in conversation. It forces us to put them side by side and look for what is the common theme here? What are the voices that need to be added and connected so that our spirits are challenged and our souls are enriched? Let's start with Ecclesiastes in this beginning part. Ecclesiastes is one of those books where many of us are familiar with it only because every now and then we hear from Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for all things. A fellow by the name of Peter Sager wrote a song about that that we actually sang a couple of weeks ago in Americana Sunday. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We don't often interact with these other passages that sound a little depressing, even a little cynical, maybe a lot cynical. In fact, some important things are going on with what Ecclesiastes is trying to help us do. Koheleth is the name of the teacher. It is the person in Ecclesiastes that is giving the lesson of these chapters, speaking to a group of people, believe it or not, who are a lot like you and me. It turns out scholarship has emerged over the last 20, 30 years on Ecclesiastes that has been very informative and helps us realize the setting for this very important book. Many of us grew up hearing that Ecclesiastes had been written by King Solomon, 
But in fact, it was much later written by or penned by a person quoting this fellow named Koheleth. It's taking place during a time that is remarkably parallel to what we're experiencing. It was during the emerging Persian Empire where there was this large and increasing global economy. Some of you also are familiar with another passage in Ecclesiastes that says, cast your bread upon the waters and it will come back to you. Anybody remember that passage? Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Now, I heard that in Sunday school, and I thought it was talking about feeding the ducks at a pond. No. In fact, it is fascinating. In this time during the Persian Empire, about 400 years before Jesus, this expanding global economy was encouraging through texts like this one for people to, what do you think is going on here? It's an encouragement for global trade. Send out your grain to foreign ports, and you'll be connected, and you'll increase in your prosperity. Cast your bread upon the waters, and it will come back to you. It gives us a little window into the many things going on, the complexities of this life. What we also know in Ecclesiastes is that because of this expansion and global economy, guess what else happens that we know well? Some people advance quickly and start making a lot of money, and other people get left behind. And in fact, another place in Ecclesiastes, it says, princes are digging ditches, and slaves are riding horses. What do you hear in that phrase? People who used to be rich have lost everything, and folks who had nothing have now become wealthy. It's a topsy-turvy economy, but it's also exciting. And this emerging middle class is trying hard to take advantage. Koheleth, this teacher, is addressing a congregation very much like you and me, both with a sense of excitement and a sense of despair. There's great possibility and there's remarkable danger. And people caught up in this, some who have been left behind and others who've gained what they wanted but found that there wasn't much meaning in this newfound wealth. There's remarkable cynicism. What Koheleth is doing like a good teacher is trying to meet his people where they are. He is verbalizing much of what he's hearing from the people that he's in contact with. What's the point? It doesn't really matter. Some of you are familiar with the Broadway musical Wicked. Anybody ever seen Wicked? You know some of the songs. My favorite, one of my favorite characters in Wicked is Fiero. And one of the, the best songs that he sings is Dancing Through Life. Nothing really matters. Everything's just kind of superficial. It's not so much cynicism as it is just sort of flitting across the surface of life. In fact, what Koheleth and Ecclesiastes is calling on you and me to do is take very seriously the need in our movement of faith to think deeply, to take seriously what God calls us to do and to be. What Koheleth is trying to help his folks deal with is realize 
There's more than despair. There's more than cynicism. In fact, there's a lot of exciting things going on that we're called to be a part of. In fact, that very phrase was used by Peggy Smith this morning when I came walking out in, in my, uh, whatever this is, my stole, and Peggy looked at me with a suspicious eye, and she said, you got a lot going on there. Well, this is a stole from Honduras. It has lots of very special memories in it. There's a richness here. And it represents what we are a part of, this cool thing also from our Christian tradition. We are in this thing called ordinary time. Now, there's Advent time. There's Lenten time. There's Pentecost time. And there's ordinary time. Ordinary time is the time that we're in, the rest of the year, when things are just ordinary. And yet, we're called to see within the ordinary the sparkle, the beauty, the incredible opportunity. Koheleth addressing this congregation of people who had just sort of lost the ability to care is speaking to where they are and saying, I hear you. I understand. The tragedies of, of our day, of division and anger and prejudice and hatred, these horrible mass shootings are a symptom of a much deeper problem that we're struggling with. It is a group of people in our national congregation that are dealing with anger and hopelessness and, and feeling left behind and saying in a way that is tragic, what difference does it make anyway? And we've got to do something. We in Christian congregations must take seriously as we think deeply about our faith, who we are and what we're called to do. We recognize in this conversation that takes place between the Ecclesiastes passage and the Colossians passage, where Paul kind of picks up where Koheleth leaves off and says, we've got to do this better. We've got to not only think deeply, but take those deep thoughts and let deep call into deep and allow that to help us live wisely. You do that by asking hard questions, dealing realistically with the problems that we face, and also recognize the way Paul starts this passage. What does the Bible say? You have died. Everything in you that wants to be earthly and participate in that, that early dustiness that is very much a part of who we are has been transcended by the sacredness that God has given into you through the Spirit blown into your life at the beginning of creation and recreated in a renewal of Jesus. You have died to what you were and you've risen to what you are. Listen to what you are. You are child of God, saved by Jesus, living proof that life is good. And we got a lot 
going on, color, beauty, the sense of, of God's holiness breathed into you and me. Therefore, all that has been put to death and there's no longer room for. And then here's this list, and it's an awkward word for preachers like me to say, but I've got to get it out there because it's here in the Scripture, fornication. Help me with this. Let's all say it together. Fornication. Okay, we got it out there. Some of you said it a little more happily than you probably should have. But let's talk about this word for just a second. Not long, but it comes from a Greek word. Now, some of you know, you think you know what this means. In fact, it comes from a Greek word, pornea. If you listen carefully, we in English have the word pornography that comes from this word. But it really is dealing with two very important issues, then and now. Fornication had to do with prostitution and adultery. In other words, it had to do with some people taking advantage of other people for their own pleasure. It is using and abusing another individual for your own pleasure. It is destroying trust. It is walking away from commitment. And it is all about me. The Bible says this and all these other earthy ideas associated with this and evil desires and, listen carefully, greed that is idolatry. Each one of these words is lifted up as absolutely, not just out of bounds, but completely unnecessary. Why? Because you have died to what you were and you have been raised to what you are, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Therefore, there's no reason for you to live in anger and wrath and slander and malice. Now, these are fancy words, but they just can be boiled down to the simple fact that when you treat other people in ways that you would not want to be treated, you are abrogating what God has done for you through Jesus. You have died to what you were, you've been raised to what you are, and you are not that. You're better than that. The anger you're tempted to feel is no longer necessary. The slander and malice, what is this? Sometimes we use the word gossip. Now, thankfully, that never happens here. Oh, wait, no, it does. In fact, churches have as much gossip and slander and malice as anywhere else, which is tragic. But it's the truth. And it's something that we need to take seriously. It's one of those things where we need to be reminded, when you say something about someone else and somebody says to you, where did you hear that? And you say, well, I'm not really sure, but I'm sure it's true. Then the person you just said it to, we should say, Maybe you should recheck your source. And before you tell anybody else what you just told me, keep your mouth, listen, shut, and make sure what you're saying is right. And then the second thing you need to think is, does it lift up the body or does it destroy the body? Is it helpful or is it hurtful? Is it mending or is it toxic? 
And if it's the latter of any of those, stay away from it, for Christ has died for you and made you better than that. And then we're called to this crazy thing, to love fully. Now, if it's up to me, this is really, really hard. Because the way this passage for today concludes is this reminder, Christ is all, and Christ is, Christ is in all. And it comes on the heels of this list. For there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised. And here comes the troubling part. Barbarian or Scythian. Now, for many of us, that just sort of floats by. Barbarian, Scythian. Here's the problem. The first part of that phrase, the whole Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, that sounds beautiful, and we all want to sign on to that. But here's where the Bible makes it troublesome. This is where love gets really hard. This is where people like you and me want to say, well, the first part sounds good, but I'm walking away from this second part because here it is. Who are the barbarians? Well, the Greeks and Romans said that anybody outside the bounds of the empire, those troubling Germanic tribes, they don't make any sense. Their language this is one of those onomatopoeias. It sounds like what it is. The Romans and the Greek said, we have no idea what they're talking about because their language sounds like they're saying, bar, 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 bar. Therefore, they are barbarians. They are nobody to us. They are nonsensical. They are subhuman. They don't belong here unless you're a Christian. And what it says here is, because of what Christ has done in me and in you, Christ is in the barbarian who needs to be welcomed and loved with the love of Jesus. And the Scythians, who are, them? Who are they? Well, they're even worse than the barbarians because they were scary people, warriors on the edge of the empire, threat to Rome. Romans hated Scythians because Scythians were scary people. And what does the Bible say? In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. For all are one in Christ. For in Christ, Christ is all. Christ is in all. And there's nothing more you and I can do to change that because Jesus has made it so. Now, I say this to you with fear and trembling for it is as hard for me as it is for you. It is so difficult to love the way the Bible calls us to love. We do not 
take this lightly. Rather, we take it seriously. And in doing so, we wrestle together, what does this mean and how do we do it? The Bible simply leaves us with, this is the template. This is the roadmap. This is the calling. Let us help one another do the best we can. Thankfully, our church tradition understands the immense difficulty of making this right. And so we share in this incredible sacrament called the Lord's Supper, where we take seriously the fact that we can't do this by ourselves. We can't do this on our own. We recognize that Christ is in all things, but we don't want to just say it. We want to experience it ourselves. We want to live it out. When we share in the Lord's Supper together, it means that we take Jesus' body into ours, and we take Jesus' blood into ours. And in doing so, in the mystery of God's providence, we not only become related to Jesus, but we become connected and related to one another. Not just here, but across the face of the earth. For Christ is in all things. This strengthens us for the journey. This gives us higher possibility to higher purpose. This allows us to be us more fully and better than we ever thought. So it was that Jesus took this loaf of bread and he raised it before his disciples. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he raised it before them and said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood. Take this, and as you do so, remember me until I come. Brothers and sisters, let us share in the power of this sacred time, this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, together. I would like to invite our servers, our ministers, to come forward as we prepare together to share in this time of intinction. Intinction is simply a fancy word of meaning we move in the direction of the cross, we come forward together in pilgrimage of faith, and we take together the Lord's Supper. You're invited to stand, and as the Spirit moves, to come forward at any of our stations and share together as we share in the body and the blood of Christ. Let us stand together.